Well, good morning. We're going to read from John chapter 2 this morning, first 12 verses. They're on the front of your notes. If you pick that up on the way in, if you've got your own Bible, you can find your way to chapter 2. We've been in this series called He Gets Us, and uh, I think this is the sixth week of, of this, and I have an unusual title. I think that provides a nice balance after last Sunday. Last Sunday, our topic was Jesus Knew Sorrow, and so we went through a, a whole list of the ways that Jesus experienced sorrow, and then we talked about the payoff that comes from that. We're going to get a lot lighter today and raise the question, was Jesus ever fun? I don't know if you've ever heard that topic in church before. I've never heard anybody teach on that topic in church before. But we're going to take a different look at Jesus this morning. And I'd like to start by doing that through this passage. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Please pray with me for a minute. Father God, we gather in this place for a lot of reasons. Yesterday, we gathered to send off a friend who'd gone home to be with you. Today, we gather to worship and to continue to put our noses and our eyes in the Word of God, and ask that you would provide for us insight for living and directions for the decision-making that we go through on a daily basis. As we read your Word and contemplate it, as we let your truth sink into us, continue to reshape our minds. We get battered by the world day in and day out. We get battered by all of the news that we take in that is often filled with whatever is the worst story in the world that leads. And all this stuff affects us. We need your truth that can well up into principles that guide our decision-making, that help us live well, and that allow us to understand your priorities in this world. So not just today, but every time we gather here. I pray that you would make us wiser, that you'd make us stronger, that you'd make us more well-equipped to succeed in life and to live well and to represent Jesus in the world. 
Lord, you know the, the burdens that we carry. You know the hurts that we have. We ask that you would draw near to each of us here today and that you would fill us in some way. Fill us with your presence. Fill us with hope. Fill us with a sense that we are noticed, that we belong to you, that we matter to you. In the times when we are lonely, we ask that you will draw near and that you will be our greatest friend. In the times when we are distracted or uh, we need something to do, we ask that you will give us a sense of mission and purpose and renew that within us. When we feel isolated, allow us to know that we're part of a church family and that together we are strong because of the way that you unite us and the way that you use us. Thank you for the many gifts and talents that are represented in this room. Thank you for the many families that are represented in this room. We ask that you would continue to make us ready to meet every challenge that comes and ready to move forward in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think of Jesus, what picture comes to mind? What picture of Jesus do you have in your head? A few decades ago, it was fairly common to find a framed picture of Jesus hanging somewhere in a family home. And whether the family was Catholic, Protestant, or nominally Christian, the painting was the same. It was the same blue-eyed, somewhat blonde-haired Jesus. This one. Did anybody grow up with that particular picture in your home? A bunch of you did. I want to tell you a story about where that came from. I knew this portrait of Jesus was popular uh, when I was younger, starting at the age of about uh, uh, 16, I started working for a painter. And so I was in a lot of different homes through my high school and college years and in my seminary years, and it was amazing to me how often I would see this particular framed portrait of Jesus in so many homes. And I wondered, how is it that this one portrait became so popular? Well, this portrait is known as Solomon's Head of Christ, and it has been called the best-known American artwork of the 20th century. The painter was a guy named Warner Solomon, who originally created a charcoal image of Jesus for the Covenant Companion, which was a youth magazine for the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is the Swedish denomination that my wife grew up in in Minneapolis. Now, Solomon was an artist, and he wanted this image of Jesus to be one that was relatable and accessible to the young adults and the older teenagers that he was working with at that time. It was painted in the late 1930s, and he sold it to a religious publisher who liked it so much that this was one of the first nationwide marketing campaigns that took hold. Roxanne, this is like right up your alley with marketing. And it quickly spread where somebody thought, this is such a warm image of Jesus that resonated with people at that time that they turned it into some prayer cards. And the prayer cards were then circulated by Christian organizations, missionaries, and by Catholic, Protestant, evangelical, mainline, white, and black churches. Everybody embraced it. As World War II broke out just a few years later... They were issued to American soldiers. They were handed out by the Salvation Army, the YMCA, and the USO. Millions of these cards were handed out as what was called the Christ in Every Purse marketing campaign. So think of it. As these young men were going off to war, 
There were business people who got behind this campaign and thought, we want to have an image of Jesus that had a few verses on the back of the card that every soldier can take with them in the midst of battle when they're going to call out to God in a foxhole, they can pull out this picture and be reminded, oh yes, Jesus is watching over me. It's an amazing story. That image has experienced considerable pushback in recent years, and you're probably aware of this as well. But the idea of a Swedish-looking Jesus might have made sense to a Swedish-American painter back in the 1930s, but we all know that Jesus was born in Israel. And he probably wasn't a blue-eyed blonde. He probably looked extremely Semitic, whatever that really means. About 20 years ago, I picked up a book filled with artistic images of Jesus envisioned by different people groups from around the world. And I found it was fascinating to see how different cultures viewed Jesus. In Africa, black communities envisioned a black Jesus. Where people were more brown-skinned, they envisioned a brown Jesus. You get the idea. And wherever the photos and the, the artwork was from, people envisioned Jesus who identified with them. Artists around the world who tell the story of Jesus tend to view Jesus through the lens of their own culture, which is exactly what Mr. Solomon did back in the 1930s. He wasn't trying to project for everybody that this is exactly who Jesus was. It's just the way he saw Jesus coming through his own generation and his own culture. And his painting just managed to find that perfect storm of marketing ideas that sent the image of Jesus into every home and around the globe during the Second World War. Now, there's a reason why I'm telling you this story. It is possible that the way we see Jesus is framed by the way that Jesus has been portrayed to us instead of seeing the real Jesus. Do you get that? That's the danger that we live in, that we are all susceptible of seeing the way that somebody else frames Jesus through their particular lens, and that gets passed on down to us. And sometimes... We can adopt that and lose sight of the real Jesus. The writers of the He Gets Us book raised the question of whether Jesus was ever fun to be around. They raised that question because so often Jesus has been portrayed in artwork as overly serious and kind of dour. And so I think it's an interesting question for us to raise in church. Was Jesus ever fun? Now, there's a challenge to that because there's no one passage in the Bible that comes out with a heading that says, let's look at the fun side of Jesus. So we've got to do some work to try to capture another image, another lens from which to view Jesus. So I hope that you find that this is worth your time. Uh, I found it quite interesting this week. So good morning, North River. We're glad that you're here. Welcome to everyone who's in the house today, and welcome to those of you who are watching online. We're glad that you are with us wherever you are, in another state, in another home, uh, wherever you've decided to watch with us today. And if you're new to all of this, whether you're in the room or you're online, we're in a series that is called He Gets Us that was prompted by a national set of TV ads that were designed to spur people to think about and talk about who Jesus really is. That's the main idea behind the whole thing. Campaign or not, we love to do that around here at North River. So what we're doing is we're, we're taking some of the themes and then we're developing it our own way week by week. And we hope that you will think deeply about Jesus wherever you are 
and that you will move in that direction as you think deeply about him. I'm going to give you the big idea right up front. This is what we're talking about this morning. When we look closely at the Gospels, sometimes we find the deep humor of Jesus. It's there, but you have to look closely. So the question that we're wrestling with this morning is, was Jesus ever fun? Let me show you how I worked at this topic this week. First, Jesus made people smile with his dry humor. Think of the image that Jesus created when he talked about the plank in someone's eye. We read a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 7, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? So we talked about this pearl of wisdom that comes from the Sermon on the Mount about three weeks ago. Jesus appealed to absurdity when he urged people to avoid inappropriate judgment. That's the topic that he really wanted to address was that we don't inappropriately, unfairly judge each other or others around us. Now, he was not saying that we don't make any judgments in life or that we don't call balls and strikes and say some things are wrong in life. But he wanted us to know that judging others without paying attention to whatever is wrong in our own lives is the height of hypocrisy. So the picture he draws in our minds is of a person trying to do eye surgery with a two-by-four sticking out of his or her eye. The picture that he paints is so absurd that it would have drawn laughter on the day that he first talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. So here's the image. Did we already show that? Did I miss it? Did it come up? There it is. So you can't really read the writing because it's not such a great image from where you are. But uh, imagine somebody with a big two-by-four sticking out of his eye. This is the way Jesus taught this. The word that he used there could either mean a splinter or a beam in the original language. And when you look at it, you realize, no way would you ever let somebody in that condition do surgery on your eye, right? So the the immediate response is to, to laugh. I imagine the people who are hearing Jesus talk about this section of the Sermon on the Mount absolutely broke out in laughter mid-sermon because they're saying, well, this is ridiculous. And that was the whole point. Absurdity sometimes makes the point in a way that uh, a simple teaching cannot. So his point was, of course, once we understand this principle, we will be less likely to judge somebody else without at first trying to analyze our own behavior, our own shortfalls. And when we do, there's more humility that comes into the picture. Here's a second way we can look at this uh, dry humor of Jesus. His humor is seen in his comment about pigs wearing necklaces. Are you familiar with this one? This comes from the Sermon on the Mount as well. Uh, Matthew 7, 6 says, "Do Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Here, the mental picture Jesus paints is of a pig wearing a pearl necklace. Again, he appealed to, the, to absurdity in order to make a point. He actually has two pictures here. One is of dogs who will tell you apart. The other is of a pig wearing this pearl necklace. Of course you wouldn't do this. Of course you wouldn't take your expensive jewelry and put it on a pig who, who lives in a slop pen. It's kind of a crazy image. But this was added to the, as the conclusion to the verses that warned about inappropriate judging. He was warning us to realize that not everybody is ready for your words of wisdom, your pearls of wisdom, 
in a spiritual sense if we go about trying to correct everybody with what we have learned. When the other party isn't ready, these, world, these words feel and look like pearls on pigs. That was actually the conclusion to his judgment statement. It's meant, again, to appeal to absurdity. Here's this ridiculous image. You know, why would we, why would we do that? Well, the image hits us with a shock value that says, oh, sometimes our Christian desire to rush into every conversation and quote the Bible, while Jesus may be honored by that, it actually does the wrong thing in somebody else's spiritual development because they're not ready to hear that and they end up trampling on the word of God because it has no value to them. We haven't built the bridge to get there. Jesus isn't saying, don't ever quote the Bible. He's not saying, don't ever quote me. He is saying, think very carefully about when and why and where you do it and what the motive is behind our use of the Bible. Or it can appear like we are out to beat people up with biblical truth. Does that make sense to you? Did I overstate it? No. He uses absurdity to help us understand points like this. And the original audience would have broken out in laughter over the images he's created. Or how about when when Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again? Okay, so here's a phrase that a number of us love because we understand the spiritual impact of that statement. Here's the way it comes out in John chapter 3. Jesus is speaking, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a a, a widely renowned teacher from the Jewish perspective, but he doesn't understand that comment. He says, how can anyone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Here again, Nicodemus the Pharisee is confused by this image that Jesus painted for him. Jesus was speaking of spiritual birth that is contrasted with physical birth. But Nicodemus at first was too literal in his interpretation, so he imagines an adult trying to climb back into his mother's womb. Impossible. When the early readers of the Gospel of John would have read this, they would have thought, my goodness, what was wrong with Nicodemus? Why couldn't he understand this this point? Jesus was taking a spiritual truth through physical means with a picture that all of a sudden seems impossible not done through a physical process. You don't have to climb back into somebody's womb. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth that comes through the Holy Spirit. Now, in these three examples, we see something of the dry humor of Jesus. It's not drop-dead funny, like you're going to roll on the floor laughing, but you get the sense that in the way that he taught, he he wasn't overly uh, serious and overly He actually made points that people would think about and that they would muse over and they would chuckle over from time to time. Here's a second way that we get at this question. Was Jesus ever fun? It's one of the easiest observations ever. Smiling at little children. Here's a scene from Luke chapter 18. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place uh, place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked him, or rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. This snapshot of Jesus comes in the midst of a long section where Jesus had been teaching crowds of people. The context of Luke chapter 18 reveals that he just told two parables to his disciples, and now there's a group of people who saw him and they started bringing their children to Jesus. It was a very natural thing. They wanted Jesus to hold their children or to put their hands, his hands on them and to bless them. Think about it. How do we respond naturally to little children when they come up to us or when a baby is presented to you for the first time? We bend down and look at them. We smile at them. We say, oh, thank you. I don't know about you, but when a little kid comes up to me, uh, because of what I do here, I can be an authority figure in kids' minds. But when they come up to me and they say, hey, Pastor Paul, I get to try to get down on their level. I am actually blown away that this little kid wants to come and, and talk to me. I think that's awesome. I melt when somebody hands me a little baby and say, would you hold my baby? And they trust me with that moment. Those are wonderful moments. And Jesus is the opposite of the disciples. The disciples are in the important mode. We're here with Jesus. Jesus is important. He's doing important things. Don't bother Jesus. And he says, no, 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 no. Bring the little children here. They're they're actually really important. Maybe they broke up his his day in a little bit where there's a moment of joy that all of a sudden begins to color the sense of importance, the sense of mission that he always had and allows him to lighten up a little bit. Jesus marveled at how young children would come to him with open arms. This stands in contrast to how some adults questioned him or how they were cynical and so he makes this a teaching point. Coming to Jesus by faith is like the way that a young child comes to us with open arms, very trusting. Can you imagine Jesus doing this without smiling at these little children? No. The Bible doesn't use words to say that he smiled or that he laughed in this moment. However, the whole exchange naturally brings us to that conclusion. And then there's a third way that we see some of the humor of Jesus. It's in some of the events that happened around his life. So we're going to look at the fun of changing water into wine. Here in John chapter 2, we find an amazing scene where Jesus, his mother, and the disciples are all invited to a wedding. We, we don't know who the wedding party was. They're not named. We know that it's in the village of Cana, which was about 30 miles from Capernaum where Jesus had his main teaching base, and it was uphill. There are mountains on the western side of the Sea of Galilee in Israel, and so they had to climb up 30 miles to get to this village. Verse 3 says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, by the way, this isn't a sarcastic response. It was a natural way of speaking back then. It was an honorific way. And then he adds, my hour has not yet come. But notice Mary's reaction. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In other words, I'm not taking this my time has not yet come business, Jesus. I'm your mother. I'm going to tell you what to do here. And she goes off to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And I imagine her walking away with a wink in her eye as if to say, okay, Jesus, now let's see what you do with this moment. So first of all, we need to frame the scene. 
Jesus is invited to a wedding. There must have been a relative or a close family friend because they not only invite Jesus and Mary, they invite the whole group of disciples. And they had to travel for this. So this is not just a quick, uh, I'm going to stop in at the wedding and a half an hour later I'm going to go on. This is like a weekend-long affair. They're walking 30 miles to get to this wedding. They've got to stay there somewhere. It's, it's a, a huge festival, and maybe a day or two later, they're going to go home. This is an event. It also tells me that this was a wedding that Jesus wanted to attend. So some of you who are thinking about getting married or you're looking back and you remember maybe this passage was one that was read at your wedding. Here's a cool thought about that. Jesus wanted to attend this wedding I think Jesus wants to attend all of our weddings. I think he wants to celebrate in those moments with us. Think of what this setting is like when you arrive at a wedding that you really want to attend. It's not compulsory. You're excited for either the, the wedding couple or their parents or whoever it is that you know, and you really want to be there. There's joy in the air. There is the anticipation of being with good friends. There's probably music playing in the background. And then you're thinking, we're going to be dancing soon. Or even if you can't, we're going to watch other people dance. And this is going to be fun. And Mary initiates the action in the scene with two insightful comments. First, she tells Jesus that the host has run out of wine. This would have been a huge embarrassment for the family. Weddings in that part of Israel were often not just a one-day affair. Sometimes they would last for a week, and people would go off to work, and they'd come back every night, and they'd celebrate that, that whole first week of somebody's new marriage. And so providing for the party would have been the groom's parents' responsibility back then. Not the bride's parents, that's the way we do it here, but it's the groom's family. So it meant that the groom's family was going to be subject to ridicule and the thought that they didn't come through in the way that they were expected. And Jesus questions Mary about why she brings this to his attention. He even adds his ministry timeline perspective. My hour has not yet come. Hadn't announced I'm the Messiah. He hadn't announced that uh, the kingdom of God is coming. All of that is yet to come in the way that John is unraveling his account of the gospel. Then notice what Mary does next. He says to the servants, despite his objection, do whatever he tells you. Only Mary, the mother of Jesus, could get away with something like this. It's a beautiful, family-oriented observation. Jesus wasn't this otherworldly character. He was part of a family and their family dynamics. And guess what? Mom still rules the roost. (laughs) It's beautiful. It it allows us to see a little bit more of the humanity that, that Jesus had as well as his divine side. And she gives these instructions in a way that suggests she knows something's about to happen. Nobody else does. But she does. And I get the sense she walks out of the room at that moment. She doesn't have to watch it. And I can kind of in my mind's eye, I can see the twinkle in her eye as she looks over her shoulder at Jesus and at the servant saying, watch this. So Jesus tells the servants to fill some stone water jars with fresh water. Have you ever wondered why John gives us so much detail? He tells us these were stone water jars, not just were they stone water jars, but they're stone water jars that each held 20 to 30 gallons. Six of them, do the math, 120 to 180 gallons 
they could hold. Somebody said, whoa, (laughs) that's a lot of wine, folks. Why does John make such a big point of telling us that these stone water jars were there and how large they were and how many gallons they could hold? Well, he adds in another detail. Tells us that they were there for ceremonial washing. So here's the deal. The Pharisees were a very popular sect of Jewish people in Israel. They didn't represent all Jewish people, but they were very, very concerned with outward appearances. And so in one sense, they were ahead of their time for the COVID era people. They had this water there so you could wash your hands before you had a meal. That's actually a really good program, right? We all did a lot of extra washing in the last few years. Keep it up. That's probably why we don't get as many colds right now. However, their washing was really not a concern about cleanliness. It was about ceremony. They would do it in front of other people and say, look how we are pure, we are clean people. We are the purest of the pure. And they had the idea that washing their hands impacted or affected a spiritual change, and it meant that they were more spiritually together than other people. So they'd often do it in front of other people, and they'd make a big show of washing their hands. It was a religious act in their minds. John wants us to pay attention to those stone jars. It's why he gives us all these details. This wasn't about removing germs from hands. They thought that all this washing made them more righteous than other people. So the servants follow the instructions. They fill them up to the brim. That means each of these jars had somewhere between 20 to 30 gallons in them. And finally, Jesus tells the servants to dip their cups or their ladles into the water and bring some of that to the master of the banquet. So they do. This would have happened either by... uh, uh, This master of the banquet either would have been the father of the groom or somebody hired by the father of the groom to oversee all the affairs. I get the sense from this picture that's what we're dealing with here, that somebody who was maybe a close friend or, a, or a, a food catering specialist was in charge of the whole deal, and they bring the ladle of wine to him. This person would be aware that the wine has run out. He'd probably be panicking over the problem, and when he tastes the water that was turned into wine, he begins to praise the groom and the groom's family for saving the best till now. Luke doesn't record the reaction from Jesus. Luke doesn't even tell us if Jesus was in the room and and that he heard the conversation. But can you imagine Jesus watching the response from the master of the banquet? I mean, there would have been a bodily reaction. All of a sudden, they moved from gloom to absolute joy, realizing that the best wine is about to come out. In my mind, I can see Jesus smiling at Mary and at the disciples and at the groom's family, kind of nodding as they're looking at him saying, you did this? And there's great joy all around this wedding reception scene. They not only have more wine, they have barrels of wine, and this wine has been declared to be the best wine of the celebration. What fun Jesus just created. All right, but there's one more piece. In looking closely at the miracle that Jesus did, we have to notice something. In verse 11, towards the end of this passage, John writes, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. 
He uses this word sign. In another translation, it says miraculous sign. The word in Greek probably conveys those two thoughts together. This is a miraculous sign. Now think about what signs do. Signs point to something. In the telling of this event, John tells us that this miracle was a sign. The function of a sign is always to point to something that is greater than itself. So think of this. All of us traveled from somewhere to get to this place this morning. Sorry for you who are online. I know you didn't travel. Maybe you traveled to the couch. But the rest of us came in a vehicle and we got to this building. Let's say that you came on Route 3. You got off the highway at exit 27. If you've been here long enough, you know that this used to be exit 12, but now it's 27, and you found the right one. And you saw a sign that began to point you in this direction. Depending on which direction you come from, it either said Pembroke Marshfield or Hanover Marshfield, and you made your way to our church location. The sign on the highway is not the thing that you were looking for, right? Right? It was the thing that directed you to the destination that you were looking for. This is what signs are designed to do. You quickly forget about the sign once you move past it and you know you're headed in the right direction. So John tells us that the water that was changed into wine was a miraculous sign. What does it point to ought to be our natural question. One of my old college professors was a guy named Merrill Tenney. And he wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John, and in it, he noticed several sub-outlines that nobody else seems to have written about, and one of them was these seven miraculous signs. John tells us that this was the first of a series of miraculous signs that are included in his Gospel. And they form one of the hidden outlines that give us clues about Jesus. In this case, this sign turns ordinary hand-washing water into something of a different substance, wine, but not only a different substance, of the highest quality of wine that they had tasted. What Jesus is revealing through this sign is that he has the ability to take common and ordinary things and change them into something that is of the highest quality and of a greater, more valuable substance. This matters because in the previous chapter, in the opening chapter of his gospel, chapter 1, John records Jesus saying that everyone who receives him and believes in his name is given the right to become children of God. This is the ultimate promise of Christian faith. This is the promise that's behind everything else. Are we just religious people Or are Christians people who are adopted into the family of God and who belong to God forevermore and can truly call him Father, my Father, and we are his sons and daughters? Now Jesus takes this common, ordinary hand-washing water. He turns it into a more highly valued substance, wine. This wine is of the highest quality at the wedding banquet. And it reveals how Jesus is able to take common and ordinary people like you and me, and change us into something that we were not. And now we become children of God by faith in Jesus the Messiah. You get it? This was a sign because it was pointing to the identity and the authority of Jesus. It reveals him as the master of quality who can take your life 
no matter where you start, no matter how broken it is, and he can turn you into a child of God who is so highly valued by God that he adopts you into his very own family. And forevermore, he sees you as one of his dearest family members. This is not just changing water into wine. This is doing something that is powerful and beautiful and it breaks out in celebration all throughout that wedding banquet but now for thousands of years since because it tells us something about who Jesus is. This is why we need to put our faith in Jesus because when we do this, something supernatural happens to us and we change from ordinary into extraordinary by the work of God, not by our own efforts. We become spiritually alive in a way that was not possible before. If I was going to tell somebody to read this passage and and pull something out of it, I would say, don't just drink the wine. Drink in the whole new reality that it's pointing to because that's where the sign takes us. Believe and receive and become children of God. So, I hope I proved my point. Here's what I said at the beginning. This is our big idea for today. When we look closely at the Gospels, instead of finding just a dour, overly serious Jesus, we also find the deep humor of Jesus because He wants you to enjoy life at the highest level. Question. Is it time for you to join the fun? Recognize that we all need a spiritual reset. Transfer your trust to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Here's the conclusion that we're reaching week after week in this series. Jesus gets us. The biggest question for us is, do we get Jesus? I wonder if you would close with me with this final simple prayer that I wrote that flows out of what we just talked about. Jesus, I now understand the sign. Only you can make me a child of God. I am transferring my trust to you. Make me new on the inside as I learn to follow you. Amen.